Quote, We do not ask for what useful purpose the birds do sing, for song is their pleasure since they were created for singing. Similarly, we ought not to ask why the human mind troubles to fathom the secrets of the heavens. The diversity of the phenomena of nature is so great, and the treasures hidden in the heavens so rich, precisely in order that the human mind shall never be lacking in fresh nourishment. So said Johannes Kepler. One of the most curious minds to ever live, Johannes Kepler's work continues to shape what we know about the universe and everything in it today. His work has impacted not only astronomy, but ophthalmology, mathematics, geography, and astrology. Kepler lived in a time when there was no inherent conflict between science, religion, and mysticism. His belief in a universe in which these three studies could coexist was essential to Kepler's endless intellectual curiosity. He saw an excess of misfortune and illness while he was alive, and yet, because of his strong faith and his confidence that astronomy was his purpose, he persevered through a life of turmoil and left behind a legacy as one of mankind's most influential scientists and philosophers. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures on the ParCast Network. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Johannes Kepler, the German mathematician, astronomer, and astrologist who proposed the laws of planetary motion. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Now, back to the life of Johannes Kepler. Johannes Kepler is best known for defining these laws of planetary motion. 1. Planets move in elliptical orbits. 2. A line between the Sun and a planet sweeps equal areas in equal times. And 3. A mathematical formula stating that the square of the orbital period of the planet is proportional to the semi-major axis of the planet's orbit. In other words, if you multiply the amount of time it takes for each planet to go around the Sun and divide it by the cube of its distance from the Sun, you will always get the same number. Kepler's contributions to science established him as one of the fathers of modern astronomy, alongside Galileo, Copernicus, and Newton. His life was full of what we in modern times would consider paradoxes. He lived during the scientific revolution, the movement during which scientists in all fields pushed for a sole reliance on objective fact and scientific study effectively doing away with the religion and mysticism that had heavily influenced the subject. And yet he himself was very religious. At the time, astronomy, the study of celestial objects, was part of a wider study called the science of the stars. 
and Kepler, a devout Protestant, frequently mixed his scientific findings with his theological and astrological beliefs. In fact, he did not even refer to his three laws as laws, but rather celestial harmonies that reflected God's design for the universe. Before Kepler was born, the Catholic Church held tight to the Ptolemaic views of astronomy, namely that we live in a geocentric or Earth-centered universe. To disagree with this perspective meant disagreeing with the church as a whole. At the time, this was risky, since the church had a large amount of control over education and the government. It was a force to be reckoned with, but then again, so was Johannes Kepler. Johannes Kepler was born prematurely into a poor Lutheran family on December 27, 1571, in Weilderstadt, Germany. Because of the circumstances of his birth, he was weak and frequently ill throughout his childhood. His father, Heinrich, was, as Johannes himself described, quote, criminally inclined, quarrelsome, liable to a bad end, end quote. Heinrich disgraced and abandoned his family many times over the years, going in and out of Johannes's life. Johannes's mother, Katharina, the daughter of an innkeeper, was a healer and herbalist. She would collect herbs and make them into potions, believing they had magical powers. Katharina had been raised by her aunt, who was accused of being a witch and burned at the stake. Certainly not the family origins you'd expect for a great scientific mind. Even worse, Johannes contracted smallpox at a young age. The disease left him with severely poor vision and disabled hands. His myriad other illnesses also held him back in school, and he took twice as long to finish elementary Latin as the other children. Johannes Kepler felt he had little to live for in his own life, which is probably why he began to look to the stars for meaning. When he was just six years old, he managed to catch sight of the Great Comet of 1577, a famed comet that was seen by most of Europe. The comet is never expected to pass by Earth again, but it only had to appear once to foster Johannes's early interest in the study of the stars. In 1589, Johannes was awarded a scholarship that allowed him to attend the University of Tübingen. Most boys who graduated from Tübingen became teachers, ministers, or government officials, and Kepler planned to become a theologian. At university, 18-year-old Kepler came under the mentorship of Michael Maestlin, his math professor. Although Maestlin publicly taught the Ptolemaic geocentrism, he was a secret supporter of Copernicus, who in 1543 had introduced the theory that the universe was, in fact, heliocentric, meaning it revolved around the sun instead of the earth. Copernicus's theories had been controversial when they were published and were widely rejected by the church and scientific community alike. But after reading Copernicus's six books concerning the revolutions of the heavenly orbs, Kepler came to support Copernicus's theories and was one of the first to do so openly. Though he was still just a student, Kepler had already begun to look for the astrological link between scientific fact and divine planning. He felt that Copernicus's theory could potentially prove both, and so he made it his mission to prove that Copernicus had been right. In 1594, when he was offered a position to teach math at a Protestant school in Graz, Austria, he accepted with the caveat that he would be able to return to Tübingen and finish his divinity studies should he choose to. 
he never did. He would be an astronomer for the rest of his life. At first, Kepler was absolutely miserable in Graz. Archduke Ferdinand II, a devout Catholic, sought to lead a counter-reformation on the largely Lutheran town. As a Lutheran mathematics professor at a Protestant school, Kepler was convinced he needed to go home to escape oppression. His fears would prove unfounded for a time. Kepler ultimately stayed in Graz, and it was there that he had his first epiphany that would define his career. While teaching his students, Kepler had drawn a triangle circumscribed in a circle. Within that triangle, he drew another circle. Kepler realized that these two circles were the same as the orbit ratios of Jupiter and Saturn. He began to wonder whether the orbits of other planets could fit around other geometric figures, like squares and pentagons, but none of them did. Frustrated and at a standstill, Kepler came to a second epiphany. The solar system is not two-dimensional, so why would this pattern be? He turned to three-dimensional objects and found that the orbits of the six known planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, could fit around what's known as the five perfect solids. A tetrahedron, a cube, an octahedron, a dodecahedron, and an icosahedron. It was then that Kepler wrote to Maestlin back at Tübingen, quote, I want to become a theologian. For a long time I was restless. Now, however, behold how through my effort, God is being celebrated in astronomy, end quote. While his previous intentions were to become a religious clergyman, Kepler considered it his new divine purpose to identify God's plan for the universe. In December of 1595, 24-year-old Johannes Kepler met 22-year-old Barbara Muller, the daughter of a wealthy mill owner and a twice-widow with a daughter from a previous marriage. The courtship was long. Barbara's first husband had been a wealthy cabinet maker. Her second husband was a district paymaster. Kepler, a humble mathematics professor, was not able to offer the kind of future her previous husbands had. He proposed anyway, and initially, Barbara's father approved of the marriage. But then Kepler had to go to Stuttgart for a few months to pay respect to the Duke of Württemberg, who had supported his previous education at Tübingen and allowed him to move to Graz to be a professor. By the time he returned, Jobst Muller, Barbara's father, had become concerned that Kepler was not able to care for his daughter and reconsidered Barbara's hand in marriage. But Kepler didn't give up so easily. After two years of courting, they were once again engaged in January of 1597. They married that April. When they first met, Kepler exclaimed that Barbara had set his heart on fire. But as the romance continued, it did not appear to be a passionate one. In his letters to his mentor, Maestlin, Kepler seemed to be rather ambivalent about the wedding plans, and the marriage seemed to be more of convenience and security than love. Kepler wrote, quote, It is certain that I am tied to this place no matter what becomes of our school, for my bride has properties, friends, and a wealthy father here. It seems that I would not, after a few years, need any salary if that would suit me, end quote. Ooh, how romantic. He might have been a little preoccupied. In 1596, shortly before the engagement, Kepler had published his first book, Mysterium Cosmographicum, or Cosmic Mystery. It was long, 
The book was a published defense of the Copernican heliocentric system, where Kepler laid out the story of his epiphany about the polyhedrons and their circumscribing spheres. He also offered the first explanation for celestial motion. Kepler concluded that there was a force emanating from the sun that pushed the planets around, causing them to orbit. He believed that this force grew weaker with distance, which explained why the farther planets had larger circumferences to orbit. Kepler was wrong. He had described something similar, but he never quite caught on to the phenomenon we now refer to as gravity, which actually guides the planets along their orbits. Even though he was not right in his conclusion, it was still a revolutionary one. He had offered the first viable explanation for celestial motion. Kepler had also found a formula that could find the size of each planet's orbit based on the length of its orbital period. He believed that the ratio of increase in the orbital period from the inner to the outer planets was twice the difference in orb radius between the planets. Later in his career, Kepler recognized that this formula was not precise enough and he rejected it. The book also described Kepler's own elation at discovering what he believed to be God's geometrical plan for the universe. The first draft of Mysterium Cosmographicum contained an entire chapter that used Bible passages to reconcile heliocentrism. This was massively controversial. Remember, at that time, common assumptions about astronomy and the universe were considered to be enforced by the Word of God. But Kepler's book essentially argued that those past teachings were wrong. One of his favorite verses was John 1.14, which reads, quote, And the Word became flesh and lived among us, end quote. To Kepler, this meant the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit literally manifested themselves into the universe as geometric forms. God the Father as the center, Christ the Son as the circumference, and the Holy Spirit as intervening space. Kepler believed the universe was a mirror that reflected these divine entities and ideas. As he wrote, quote, the ideas of quantities have been and are in God from eternity. They are God himself, end quote. With the help of his mentor, Michael Maestlin, Kepler convinced the University of Tübingen to publish the book on one condition. He would remove the chapter where he backed up his findings with Bible verses and replace it with a simpler, more accessible explanation of the Copernican system and Kepler's ideas. Now, the book was published in 1596, when Kepler was just 25 years old. Little did he know, a Danish astronomer named Tycho Brahe would get his hands on a copy of Mysterium Cosmographicum and change the course of his career forever. Coming up, we'll discuss Kepler's further contributions to the budding field of astronomy in the early 17th century. Now, back to the story. After he published Mysterium Cosmographicum in 1596, Johannes Kepler sent the book to many of his colleagues, including Georg Limnaeus from Jena. Kepler had told Limnaeus that he was interested in working with Tycho Brahe. Kepler got his wish, though indirectly. He became involved in a mild controversy with Tycho Brahe after he came to the attention of Rimarsus Ursus the imperial mathematician to Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor. Ursus and Tycho Brahe were bitter rivals and had spent years trying to discredit one another's work. 
When Ursus became aware that Kepler was seeking to establish a professional relationship with Tycho Brahe, he intervened. At that time, Ursus was preparing to publish his own book, De Astronomicis Hypothesibus, or On Astronomical Hypothesis. Ursus had an old letter that Kepler had sent him, back when Kepler was looking for a more established mathematician to support his theories. Without asking Kepler's permission, Ursus published the letter as a preface to his book. In reality, Ursus didn't care much what Kepler had to say, but Ursus' book did take credit for a number of Tycho Brahe's theories, and Ursus knew that publishing Kepler's letter would infuriate Tycho Brahe. He was right. Kepler had been hoping to develop a professional relationship with Tycho Brahe, but now Kepler was on the record extolling the virtues of Brahe's rival. Kepler did eventually get his wish after Brahe sent him a letter critiquing his mathematical systems. Kepler responded to the letter, and the two men began to develop a professional relationship. After the book was published and Johannes and Barbara were wed, he spent his time in Graz quietly studying mathematics. It was around this time that Kepler's family life started dissolving. He realized that his wife, Barbara, did not understand his work and, in his own words, described her as, quote, fat, confused, and simple-minded, end quote. Ouch. As if that wasn't enough, on February 2nd, 1598, Barbara gave birth to their first son, Heinrich. Heinrich died only 60 days after his birth. In June of the following year, Barbara gave birth to another child, Susanna, who died after only a month. There was nothing left in Graz for the Keplers. Johannes wrote to his mentor, Maestlin, and begged for a job back in Germany, but there was nothing Maestlin could do. Meanwhile, Kepler's hero, Tycho Brahe, had a new job as imperial mathematician to Rudolf II, Holy Roman Emperor. Wait, where have I heard that name before? Oh, you know, Rudolf II, the boss of Rimarsis Ursus, Brahe's sworn enemy, the astronomer who published Kepler's letter without his permission and tried to drive a wedge between them right from the start. Tycho Brahe actually succeeded Ursus as imperial mathematician to the throne of Austria. Brahe moved to his new home in Prague, provided by the emperor. Did you know the imperial mathematician is gifted a castle by the king? I did not. But that explains why when Johannes Kepler heard of Tycho Brahe's career change in late 1599, he, Barbara, and his 10-year-old stepdaughter Regina packed up their things and left for Prague. Kepler arrived at Tycho Brahe's new home in Benetech, about 50 kilometers from Prague, on February 4, 1600. Though the men had kept up a correspondence, this was the first time they'd met in person. Johannes and his family stayed as guests for a few months, which allowed Johannes to analyze Brahe's data about Mars and contribute his own ideas. Brahe kept his research close and kept an even closer watch on Kepler. But he was impressed and eventually allowed him more access to the information he had been gathering. Kepler needed to stay in Brahe's good graces, and he was desperate for a permanent position. By then, Protestants had been formally expelled from Graz by the Lutheran-controlled government. The Keplers couldn't return home. With nowhere to go, Kepler and his family were completely at Brahe's mercy. 
He'd hoped all this time that Brahe would offer him a job, but no such offer came. Kepler tried to force Brahe's hand and told him he was considering a job at a nearby university. Kepler gave Brahe a deadline for a job offer, four weeks. While waiting, he left Benetech for Prague, but when his family finally arrived to join him on October 19, 1600, <laughs> he had contracted a fever that plagued him intermittently throughout winter and the next spring. Kepler returned to work for Tycho Brahe in late October, despite the fact that the four-week deadline had passed. It wasn't that Brahe didn't want Kepler to work for him. In fact, Brahe had been working to secure a salary for Kepler from the emperor himself. But the process of confirming that salary was slow. Kepler wrote, quote, God let me be bound with Tycho through an unalterable fate and did not let me be separated from him by the most oppressive hardships, end quote. During this time, Kepler was assigned to work on the orbit of Mars, the most difficult one of them all, and he even bet a colleague he could figure it all out in one week. However, determining the orbit of Mars took him several years to accomplish. On October 13, 1601, Tycho Brahe attended a banquet with the higher-class members of society. According to Kepler, he was too polite to even exit for a brief moment to use the restroom during the dinner. When Brahe returned home, he was in excruciating pain and was no longer able to urinate. He died unexpectedly 11 days later, on October 24, 1601. There was speculation as to whether Brahe's death was caused by a bladder infection or poisoning including a theory in which Kepler killed him with mercury. However, in 2010, his body was exhumed again, and mercury poisoning was ruled out. To this day, his exact cause of death remains unconfirmed. Tycho Brahe's last words were, quote, Let me not seem to have lived in vain, end quote. There's no evidence that they were aimed directly at Kepler, but they certainly seem to suggest so. After Brahe's death, Kepler took over his job and became the imperial mathematician to Rudolf II. Finally, Kepler's streak of misfortune was over. With his new job came a prestigious title and a salary that allowed him to care for his family. And just in time, too. Barbara gave birth to their third child, Susanna, on July 9, 1602. Kepler worked on Mars's orbit for several more years. And despite Brahe's last words, Kepler used all of Tycho Brahe's research as a foundation for his own without crediting him for it. Brahe was right to have guarded his research so jealously in his lifetime. Kepler took advantage of the access he had to Brahe's lab, and he justified it by saying that he was the only one who would be able to make good use of the information Brahe had gathered. 1604 was a big year for Johannes Kepler. Early in the year, he presented the emperor with a book he'd written, Astronomiae Pars Optica, or The Optical Part of Astronomy. The book is now recognized as the foundation for modern optics in contemporary science. The manuscript described the inverse square law of the intensity of light, reflection by both flat and curved mirrors, and the fundamentals of pinhole cameras, in addition to parallax, or a difference in the apparent position of an object viewed along two different lines of sight, as well as the apparent size of celestial objects. 
Neuroscientists credit this work as the first proposal of the idea that images are inversely projected and reversed by the eye's lens onto the retina. This idea is still accepted as truth today. In October of 1604, Kepler spotted a supernova that could be seen with the naked eye. It was the second supernova to be observed without equipment or question. The first had been observed by none other than a Mr. Tycho Brahe. Like Tycho Brahe, whose star was named Tycho's supernova and located in the constellation Cassiopeia, Kepler's was subsequently named Kepler's supernova. Still shining, it's located in the constellation Ophiuchus. Kepler planned to publish yet another piece of work with the research that Tycho Brahe had done from his conservatory. The Brahe family caught wind of this and tried every legal strategy possible to regain control of Brahe's work. Junker Tengnagel, Tycho Brahe's son-in-law and former assistant, led the fight against Kepler. The struggle lasted for years, but in 1609, Tengnagel finally allowed Kepler to publish Astronomia Nova, his most important work. Up next, we'll discuss the final years of Kepler's scientific studies and his legacy today. Now, back to the story. To this day, scientists consider Johannes Kepler's 1609 study, Astronomia Nova, to be one of the most significant books about astronomy. With this publication, Johannes Kepler firmly cemented his name forever in history. In it, he published the first two of his three laws of planetary motion. Well, the first law states that planets sweep out equal areas of their orbits at equal times. Because of this, the speed of the planet increases as it nears the sun and decreases as it recedes from the sun. Kepler came up with the second law first, and what he found was that planets actually travel faster when they're closer to the sun. For this to be true, our planets could not travel in perfect circles, but rather ellipses. The laws were revolutionary, and for the first time, they made sense of the structure of the universe. Prior to that, astronomers believed in epicycles, the idea that planets moved around in smaller orbits as they moved in their larger orbit, and the equant, an imaginary mathematical point that causes planet speeds to change. But Kepler's laws formed a different and more simplified version of the universe. Kepler was the first astronomer to actually address the cause of the motion of celestial objects, which he reiterated in this book the force emanating from the sun that caused the planets to move around it. In Astronomia Nova, Kepler records the paths he took to get to both laws, including the mistakes he made. And while he did make several errors in his calculations, they somehow always managed to cancel each other out. With regard to public acclaim, Astronomia Nova didn't do much better than Kepler's first book, Mysterium Cosmographicum. His peers at the time couldn't see the profound significance of his work. In fact, he too disliked the idea of ellipses orbits. He would have much rather preferred uniform circular motion for the planets because a uniform circular arc that applied to all planets would be considerably easier to calculate. 
The importance of Kepler's two laws laid out in Astronomia Nova would not become obvious until Sir Isaac Newton used them as a foundation for his theory of universal gravitation. Despite the lack of success with his books, Kepler had become a rather well-known astronomer. The following year, when a certain Italian astronomer named Galileo Galilei invented the telescope, he sought support and approval from Kepler. Kepler, who had corresponded with Galileo intermittently for the past 12 years, supported Galileo, his telescope, and his discovery of four satellites orbiting Jupiter. He reached out to Galileo to request a telescope so that he may independently confirm Galileo's satellite discoveries, but Galileo ignored him. That didn't stop Kepler. He borrowed a telescope from an acquaintance and was able to confirm Galileo's discoveries in his 1611 study titled Dioptrice. He seemed to be doing well professionally, but his life was once again upended by misery. In 1611, all three of the Kepler children contracted smallpox. On February 19, 1611, Friedrich Kepler, who was six at the time, died. Johannes wrote of Friedrich, quote, To look at the bloom of his body, or the charm of his behavior, or listen to the prophecies of promised happiness made by friends, gave good cause to call him a hyacinth of the morning in the first days of spring, which, tenderly fragrant, filled the room with ambrosian good odors, end quote. To make matters worse, Barbara became sick, and on July 3, 1611, she passed away from Hungarian fever. Kepler wrote of her death, quote, Stunned by the deeds of horror of the soldiers and the sight of the bloody fighting in the city, consumed by despair of a better future and by the unquenched yearning for her darling lost son, to bring an end to her troubles, she was infected by the Hungarian spotted typhus, her mercy taking revenge on her, since she would not be kept from visiting the sick. In melancholy despondency, the saddest frame of mind under the sun, she finally expired." End quote. After the loss of his wife and son, Kepler continued to serve as the imperial mathematician, but Matthias was not as interested in astronomy as his brother had been, as a result, Kepler was free to leave Prague if he wished to do so, so he moved to Linz, a small town in Upper Austria. Linz was a fresh start for Kepler, who enjoyed financial stability and more religious freedom than he'd had in Prague. He kept himself busy working as a teacher at the local university and assisting local astronomers with their studies. Word soon got out that Kepler, now famous from his groundbreaking scientific publications, was single. The first time Johannes Kepler had sought to marry, he'd barely managed to convince Barbara's father to approve of the union. But now that he was wealthy, he had no shortage of women who seemed eager to become the second Mrs. Johannes Kepler. Kepler actually hit the point where 11 different women were all vying to become the second Mrs. Johannes Kepler. Mm, I'd love to see that season of The Bachelor. Me too. After over a year of weighing his options, Kepler made his decision. On October 30th, 1613, 41-year-old Johannes Kepler married 24-year-old Susanna Rutinger, the orphan daughter of a cabinet maker. 
Of his decision to choose Susanna over the other ten women, Kepler wrote that she, quote, won me over with love, humble loyalty, economy of household, diligence, and the love she gave the stepchildren, end quote. Regina, Johannes's stepdaughter, warned him that Susanna was too young to care for 11-year-old Susanna and 6-year-old Ludwig, and that it would be more suitable for him to marry someone more aristocratic. However, the marriage was a happy one. Over the following years, Kepler's new wife bore him six children, three of whom survived into adulthood. Things seemed to be looking up for Johannes, but unfortunately, chaos entered his life again when his mother, Katerina, was accused of being a witch. Remember, Katerina's aunt, who raised her, had been accused of being a witch and executed for her crimes. The early 17th century was a socially and scientifically progressive time for Europe, but seemingly contrarily, witch hunts were also on the rise. Between 1615 and 1629, Wilderstadt, Kepler's hometown, executed 38 alleged witches. In 1621, Kepler traveled to the town of Leonberg, where his mother lived, and used his prestige as imperial mathematician to keep her from being burned at the stake. The process took about five years, but after Katerina did not budge under the threat of torture, she was finally free to go in 1621. The stress must have taken its toll on her, however, because she died just six months later. Despite his personal crises, Johannes was still able to focus on his work. In 1619, he had published the Harmonicis Mundi, or Harmonies of the World. In this book, Kepler discusses the harmony of geometrical forms and physical phenomena. It is also here that he first introduced his third law. The book is divided into five long chapters. One, regular polygons. Two, the congruence of figures. Three, the origins of harmonic proportions in music. Four, harmonic configures in astrology. And five, harmony of the motions of the planets. In chapter five, Kepler introduces the third law of planetary motion. The square of the periodic times are to each other as the cubes of the mean distances. Uncharacteristically, he did not provide details as to how he came upon this epiphany. While nowadays we recognize Kepler's third law of planetary motion as revolutionary, like most of his other work, its importance was not recognized until later, when it helped Sir Isaac Newton with his study of gravitational forces in the 1660s. In 1623, Kepler completed the Rudolphine Tables, a project 23 years in the making. They were a set of star catalogs and planetary tables first proposed by Tycho Brahe during his time as imperial mathematician. Once again, Kepler was building on Brahe's work. The tables wouldn't be published until 1627. Religious tension, political turmoil, and a series of conflicts had gripped the city of Linz and taken Kepler's focus away from his work. He finally was able to publish the tables with his own money in 1627. But he didn't have long to enjoy the book's success. In 1630, Kepler came down with an acute illness— He had been plagued with fevers his whole life, ever since he'd been stricken with smallpox as a child. He didn't pay any attention to this particular bout of sickness. His doctors treated him with a popular method back then known as bleeding, but it did not work. 
Soon, he began to lose consciousness and became delirious. In his last moments, despite his delirium, he remained clear and confident in his salvation in Jesus Christ. At noon on November 15, 1630, Johannes Kepler took his last breath. He was 58 years old. Johannes Kepler left over 18 scientific works, and the celestial event named after him, Kepler's supernova, remains the most recent supernova seen by the naked eye. Kepler's work laid the foundation for Sir Isaac Newton and every astronomer that followed. Today, he's best known for his three laws of planetary motion. His story is one of unwavering faith, a belief that his passion was his purpose. Whether it was illness, tragedy, or persecution, nothing could keep Johannes Kepler away from his work and the values to which he held firm. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Kimberly Chang and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.